Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. My name is Pradeep Kamath, and I'm a pediatric critical care physician at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. And my name is Rahul Debania, a current second year pediatric critical care fellow. Today's episode is dedicated to the intubation of the critically ill pediatric patient. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Heather Viamonte. Dr. Viamonte is an assistant professor of pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine. She's a pediatric cardiac intensivist at the Children's Heart Center and the director of Cardiac ECMO. The Children's Heart Center is a 30-bed dedicated cardiac intensive care unit at the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta at Eggleston. Dr. Viamonte is a newly published author whose book, Wild Type, has already been released and a second novel is on its way to publication. Dr. Viamante is on Twitter as HK underscore Jacobs. Please join us today for our podcast with Dr. Viamante. I will now turn it over to Rahul to start our patient case. We have a four month old patient admitted to the pediatric intensive care unit from the emergency department for acute respiratory failure on high flow nasal cannula. The child's condition has slowly deteriorated over the past few hours and now requires intubation. An echo is performed pre-intubation due to enlarged cardiac silhouette on chest radiograph, and it demonstrates left ventricular dysfunction with dejection fraction in the low 40s. The patient's saturations are dipping to the mid 80s despite being on maximum high flow nasal cannula support. Dr. Viamonte, welcome to Pick Your Doc on Call. We are excited to have you today to discuss this really important topic of endotracheal intubation of a critically ill child with a focus on congenital and acquired heart disease. We would really like to organize this episode into pre-intubation, during intubation, as well as highlight the importance of contingency planning. Thank you, Rahul and Pradeep, for having me on Pick You Duck on Call podcast. I'm delighted to be here and discuss one of my favorite topics. I have no conflicts of interest or financial disclosures. Dr. Viamonte, let's start with highlighting the common indications for intubation in both the pediatric and cardiac ICU. Pediatric ICU and cardiac ICU physicians frequently provide intubation for infants and children with acute respiratory failure, upper airway obstruction, hemodynamic instability, and I would include uh, ventricular dysfunction as well as uh, dysfunction due to sepsis, management of increased ICP, and uh, mediastinal masses. Additionally, the indication for intubation to lower metabolic demand, as well as to provide for procedural safety and uh, transport to um, some type of study is also something that occurs. Dr. Viamonte, which patient conditions would you consider high risk prior to endotracheal intubation? Since I'm a cardiac person, the first thing that comes to mind are children with congenital and acquired heart disease. But any child with hemodynamic instability, meaning uh, low blood pressures or just very impaired perfusion, kids with pulmonary hypertension, infants with upper airway obstruction, increased ICP, mediastinal masses, also children who despite maximal uh, non-invasive bi-level support are rapidly worsening. Dr. Viamonte, what are factors in infants or children with congenital heart disease which make them especially high risk? Infants with congenital heart disease have both anatomical and physiologic issues uh, that complicate the process of endotracheal intubation, leading to cardiac arrest. 
These include uh, systemic ventricular dysfunction, children who have single ventricle physiology, children who have arrhythmias and pulmonary hypertension, in addition uh, to um, kids who have uh, coronary artery anomalies that will be especially sensitive to changes in coronary perfusion pressure. I think this is really important for our listeners, and that is to have an important understanding of a patient's past medical history, as well as their overall physiology, as this will be very key for risk stratification. As we shift gears and talk a little bit more about anatomic concerns, what have you found helpful to assess prior to intubation? If we're shifting the focus to a specifically anatomical concerns, we'll discuss um, just the physical aspects of the airway, specifically in heart disease. Many children have congenital heart disease as well as other genetic syndromes who make them especially difficult, uh, not only to bag mask, um, but also to visualize their airway. Things that come to mind are children who have Down syndrome with large tongues, Pierre Robin, where you may have a very abnormal airway with a small opening, Golden Heart syndrome, Treacher Collins, and various mucopolysaccharidoses. Children with micronathia, any type of mid-face hypoplasia, macroglossia, facial clefts, abnormal tooth position, high arched palate, and short neck can also have very challenging airways. Additionally, we should consider children with morbid obesity, limited uh, temporomandibular joint mobility, and also limited mouth opening that could be challenging. This is an important point. Prior to intubation, your assessment should include anatomic factors, which you can hopefully anticipate intra-intubation. Dr. Viamante, as we shift gears from the airway to the heart, how do you conceptualize congenital heart defects prior to intubation? This is a very difficult question because I think that there's various ways to both divide and stratify children with uh, congenital heart defects. I'm going to make it very simple, which is something I do for myself, um, as well as everyone who is a critical care person, and I'm a picky person uh, at heart. You have to understand how the blood goes around. In the first five seconds of looking at a patient um, who has heart disease and deciding what your next steps are going to be, you have to know how blood gets to the body and how blood gets to the lungs. Once you know those things, then I sort of move on mentally in my mental model and decide what type of lesion is important during the intubation process. We may have lesions who have sort of the classic um, heart failure due to excessive pulmonary blood flow, which may be at the expense of systemic blood flow. So these would include uh, things like um, children with volume overload, PDAs, ASDs, VSDs. But additionally, um, something to think about is, is this a single ventricle? And is the QP to QS balance uh, so fragile that you're going to dramatically change that during your intubation process? Additionally, the next thing I sort of think about is uh, children who have uh, some type of pressure loading lesion. Now, why is this important? Well, to me, this is uh, one of the highest risk intubations um, that we perform is children who have um, systemic outflow tract obstruction and left ventricular hypertrophy. And this can either be fixed or dynamic, but what happens is uh, changing your hemodynamics during the induction process will drop your diastolic blood pressure such that you have limited coronary perfusion pressure and very high risk of arrest. So this would be your critical aortic stenosis patient, for example, or your hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, additionally, you should know what the systemic ventricle can and can't do. 
How dysfunctional is it? And how is it going to respond to your other physiologic aberrations like hypoxia, hypercarbia, acidosis? Um, I think that that sums up sort of my first 60 seconds of thinking about intubating a kid like this. That is great. And to recap thus far, we have really talked about a mental model for the high-risk intubation. And as clinicians, we should really remember that patients can have not only anatomic considerations, but some important physiologic derangements that can make these children at particularly high risk for cardiac collapse. Let's transition the discussion to during intubation. Dr. Viamante, what pathological derangements do you want to optimize prior to intubation? I'm all about optimization because optimization leads to a greater realm of success than failure. So I I think about it in terms of a couple of things. So number one, hypoxemia, two, hypotension, three, acidosis, and four, um, understanding what type of... um, support uh, this child may need in addition to uh, what you've already provided, uh, meaning mechanical circulatory support. Um, So thinking about the oxygen consumption in children, it's much higher than adults, four to six mLs per kilo per minute compared to an adult whose oxygen consumption is three to four mLs per kilo per minute. Kids have lower reserve. I like to say that they have a higher fragility factor. And in heart disease, you have a much higher fragility factor than um, other patients. In kids who have pre-existing hypoxia, especially those who have a situation where their intubation is delayed, they're at very high risk of rapid desaturation and then cardiac arrest resulting in hypoxic brain injury. What about the patient who is hypotensive in the peri-intubation period? So studies from the near for kids investigators, which is an incredible group of folks, um, have reported a higher association of hemodynamic issues such as hypotension in children with congenital heart disease both cyanotic and non-cyanotic, who have oxygen desaturation more than 30% from baseline during their intubation. Positive pressure from bag mass ventilation or immediately after intubation decreases venous return to the RV due to increased intrathoracic pressure. Things like sepsis, volume depletion, third spacing, a low SVR state exacerbates that hypotension. If you look at um, a very recent study who looked at children with um, congenital and acquired heart disease who were intubated, there was a, there was a um, peri-intubation cardiac arrest risk of 20% among patients with moderate to severe systolic dysfunction of the systemic ventricle. This is something I really want to, I guess, bring home to everyone because I see this on a daily basis. Pre-intubation hypotension, high lactate, a lower pH before intubation, and oxygen saturation more than 10% were also risk factors for peri-intubation cardiac arrest. I think the key in this segment is to really have fine attention to detail, optimize your monitoring equipment, and especially anticipate risk factors for peri-intubation cardiac arrest. Dr. Viamonte, what about those patients who have severe metabolic acidosis? For example, in the PICU, we see patients with diabetic ketoacidosis or some sort of ingestion that can predispose them to having low pH and acidosis. So these children are in a state of compensation for their metabolic acidosis, and they're increasing their alveolar ventilation to decrease alveolar PCO2. Once these kids become apneic during intubation, it can lead to a very precipitous drop in serum pH, which can lead to cardiovascular collapse, especially in those with pulmonary hypertension. Post-intubation, it's very difficult to mechanically provide the appropriate level of alveolar ventilation 
uh, using lung protective strategies due to high rates and tidal volumes that are needed from the mechanical ventilator. These children are at very high risk of developing relative hypoventilation, continued acidosis, flow starvation, patient vent dyssynchrony, and ongoing acidosis because of this. And so now we are really building this episode as we've talked about airway and cardiac issues, as well as these so-called external factors, namely intravascular status, as well as acid-base balance. Dr. Viaman Monte, we have alluded to cardiopulmonary interactions, and I would like you to expand a bit on how systolic dysfunction from either ventricle plays a role in your thought process during intubation. I feel like I um, think about this all day long. In fact, we introduced a sort of preparatory sheet uh, similar to Near for Kids into our cardiac ICU in the last year so that we could start the conversation as soon as someone arrived in the ICU, even if they were postoperative and doing well, because this is such a high risk event. If you have systolic dysfunction of either ventricle, as we've seen in the Near for Kids study that we just discussed, it's a 20% risk of cardiac arrest during intubation. And I like to think about it in the following ways. So if you think about the right ventricle, the right ventricle is low pressure, it's highly compliant. In cases of RV dysfunction, I will say the RV is very afterload sensitive. It's much more afterload sensitive than the LV. Dropping your preload and increasing your afterload can push your RV into a severely dysfunctional state. Because of ventricular interdependence and because your left-sided cardiac output only depends on what's coming back in your pulmonary veins, that's going to lead to cardiac arrest because you don't have any aliquots of blood to push out of your aorta. Additionally, in thinking about the left ventricle, the left ventricle in its performance, especially when it's dysfunctional, it can be very sensitive to induction medications and changing SVR, changing preload, and also changing contractility. It's very sensitive to hypoxia, acidosis. So you combine all of this where you have a patient in respiratory failure, bad heart failure, they have acidosis, hypoxia, maybe some other underlying thing like sepsis, and you take them and give them medications that are going to depress their cardiac function, you better be ready. <laughs> I really like how you broke these uh, various factors down, especially breaking the heart into the right ventricle and left ventricle and understanding that we are essentially modulating physiology, especially as these children are trying to regain some level of homeostasis. Dr. Viamonte, as we are moving into the actual intubation, what are ways of which you can mitigate risk in these patients? Absolutely. As we discussed, I think number one is preparation. We have a sheet that we keep at every single bed space that is a plan for intubation for everyone. I can walk in at 7.02 in the morning, grab the sheet, and know what I need. That sheet includes things like, is this patient an ECMO candidate? Do we need to circle ECMO that it needs to be at the bed space for intubation? Do we need to have the code card at the bedside, pads on the patient, pacer wires hooked up, and a various other slew of medicines that we might need? And then it's you know building a um, collaborative at the bed space and having a short discussion of what kind of approach we're going to have. How do we assign roles? Who's going to do what? Who's going to intubate the baby? Who's going to be the backup? Um, I think you can't prepare enough. And then having the right equipment, sometimes you're going to intubate a cardiac baby and you're not going to have any pulmonary blood flow. So you don't have change in your qualitative CO2 monitoring. So how do you deal with that? And do you have the right equipment so that you can do a video DL if you need to? And then thinking about 
the intubation, the tube going in and everyone cheers, yay. And then the majority of the time you give those first few positive pressure breaths and the cardiac arrest then happens and you have to be prepared to deal with that. I like saying having a plan A through H. So being able to just spiderweb out every single scenario in your paradigm and have a plan for it. I think this is really important. And if we take a global perspective, we are all pediatricians at heart and this is our form of prevention. I really enjoy how you highlighted the team-based approach. And remember that standardized care in a personalized model leads to optimized care. So as we specifically go into the equipment, I want to get your perspective on sedation and adjuncts. What are the medications you want to have at your disposal at the bedside? There is a very excellent talk, and I'll sort of push the Cardiac Academy, which um, puts videos out there on YouTube, which are which is excellent if anyone wants to search for it. It's Gil Ranofsky's group, and it's excellent. They had a talk uh, similar to this a few months ago, and um, it's interesting to get world expert opinion. And also when it matches your own practice, you sort of feel like, oh, maybe I'm doing the right thing. <laughs> Although the fellows make fun of me and say that I intubate with epi and rock, I promise that I do actually use induction agents. I'm a fentanyl ketamine rock person. Achieving rapid induction and intubatable conditions in these kids are important because many of our children, for instance, Glenn's and Fontan's, people who have cavopulmonary anastomoses, are not going to tolerate positive pressure ventilation. I would say about 80% of the time I have epinephrine available for the intubation. And for someone who has moderate or severe cardiac dysfunction, I actually give the epinephrine during induction. We're not talking about code dose epi. We're talking about a few mics of epi during the induction between agents and paralysis in order to promote um, uh, cardiac um, uh, contractility. I avoid certain things. I try to correct acidosis. I try to avoid benzodiazepines and propofol if possible. Always having fluid available, especially for people with right-sided obstructive lesions who may be um, dependent uh, on a certain uh, in diastolic volume. And then if you have time, sometimes we'll even start a cardioactive infusion like epinephrine beforehand. And then obviously making sure all your electrolytes are completely corrected. Atomidate is controversial. I do use it. I don't use it if I suspect sepsis. I do use it for isolated, dilated cardiomyopathy uh, who um, is going down the tubes. And I frequently have mechanical circulatory support at the bedside. I'm very, very fortunate to work at an institution where it is easy and supported to have a surgeon and an ECMO circuit at the bed space uh, when we're performing an endotracheal intubation. This is a great highlight of the various sedative agents. And what's important is that it is not a one-size-fits-all approach. And we really have to consider these medications for our patients by weighing the advantages and disadvantages. Dr. Viamonte, we really appreciate your insights on today's podcast. As we wrap up, what are your take-home clinical pearls for our listeners with regards to intubation of the critically ill high-risk patients? I would say that intubation of the critically ill infant or child is more than just performing the laryngoscopy. It's more than just getting the tube in the hole. It's about maintaining the patient's cardiopulmonary reserve, leveraging the team potential and resources, and mitigating chaos as the patient is placed on mechanical ventilation. I cannot stress more about the need for preparation for the worst, focusing on a team dynamic approach, assigning roles, 
and paying careful attention to anatomic as well as physiologic difficulties. Asking for help from anesthesia, from an intensivist colleague, from a respiratory therapist is encouraged. It's not ever a sign of weakness. I also cannot stress enough the importance of simulation sessions to practice high-risk intubations and the response to adverse events, as well as team building. To summarize today's episode, we learned from Dr. Viamonte about intubation of infants and children who are considered high risk, especially those who have cardiac disease. We really wanted to emphasize that the focus is not just airway, but also potential physiologic derangements, which you may come across during the intubation process, as well as after the intubation process. As a practical tool, use of ketamine, fentanyl, and rock can optimize children who you need to intubate, but are also hemodynamically unstable. This concludes our episode today on intubation of the high-risk, critically ill pediatric patient. We hope you found value in this short podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback and place a review on our podcast. PQ Doc on Call is co-hosted by Pradeep Kamath and Dr. Rahul Temenia. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you, Dr. Heather Viamonte, for your expertise today. 